0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 8 of GFOA's Finance Fridays. I'm Timothy Martin. Today, we are traveling back to Southern California to have a frank and charming conversation with Lisa Marie Harris. Growing up in San Francisco as the eldest of seven kids, Lisa Marie speaks quite candidly about her experiences of being in a family of limited means. We see this cycle play out many times in our country. Parents working multiple jobs to make ends meet, thrusting responsibilities onto their children, forcing them to quickly grow up and care for their well-being and those of their siblings. But children are resilient and find ways to make the most of their opportunities in their community. You will hear a story about a lifelong learner how movies and a book about an impoverished but aspirational adolescent girl shaped a personal image and created a drive to succeed. After personally financing her Berkeley education by working several part-time jobs during an unstable home life, Lisa Marie made the difficult but necessary decision to apply for legal independence from her parents, opening the door for grants and financial assistance to finish her degree. A Sloan Fellowship created to encourage minorities to pursue a job in government services led her to graduate at the University of Michigan, where her hard work earned her a tuition-free degree in public policy. Her professional career has spanned lengthy stops at the EPA, San Francisco Airport Authority, and her current position as Director of Finance with the San Diego Water Authority. She speaks quite openly about the challenge of being a woman in the workplace, having to prove oneself as well as the difficulty of balancing career and motherhood in a time when society viewed both to be in opposition of one another. Don't get me wrong, our conversation isn't always serious. Throughout the hour, she made us laugh several times with her warmth and humor. We thoroughly enjoyed our time with her and we know you will as well. So, Lisa Marie, you obviously, you know, grew up uh, in San Francisco from a big family as well. Um, kind of talk about that for us, if you could.
1: Sure. Well, I was the oldest of seven kids. Um, and um, obviously, being the oldest, you grow up being more responsible, more responsibilities. And I think it obviously shaped who I am to de- today. It made it very easy or not easy, but it was a natural transition for me to take leadership roles in my career. And because I had opportunity to have a master's and a bachelor's degree, you you start off at a higher level in your career because you have those degrees. And so I started out at the EPA leading um, teams going on to be the CFO of San Francisco Airport shortly thereafter. But I think the skills that you learn from being the oldest because you have to be accountable, you have to be responsible. I had to help take care of my siblings. My parents both worked uh, days so that by the time I got home, they could work at night. And so that helped with the daycare situation. And so I had a lot of responsibility early on but it was good. I mean, I, I have no regrets or, or anything about that. I think it helped shape who I am today. And I'm very blessed for that opportunity and that experience. I mean, I didn't get to participate in high school functions like volleyball. I really wanted to play volleyball, but um, I never got to do those extracurricular activities. But it was interesting when you write your narrative for going into college, I wrote about my experience As uh, a leader in my family and helping raise the children and um, Berkeley and Michigan, they loved that part of my story and so it actually did benefit me that was my extracurricular at the time I didn't think it would mean anything but they saw significant value in and I think that's one of the reasons why I got in those two schools.
0: And, and And you talk about being a leader at home while your your parents had to work. did did your siblings look at you as a leader? what What were the dynamics like? Um, you know you're you're the oldest, obviously. so you're kind of you know having to tell the other ones what to do or what not to do. what What was that experience like?
1: It was challenging because I was in a, a mixed family. my mom, my stepmom was was my mom because I didn't, I didn't my mom wasn't in my life at the time. So some of. The siblings were half siblings. And so, um, and even if they weren't, they're not always gonna do what the big sister says, right? I mean, so sometimes they did what I asked, but most times they didn't. Um, So, but it was was a positive experience overall, but it was definitely a challenge because I would love to have hit them, but I couldn't. I I was directly instructed not to hit my siblings. And I adhered to that. And so it made it that much more challenging for them to to obey, if you will. But, uh, you know, it it was it was a challenge. I could say that. But I I, I, one of the things that I remember learning when my parents weren't around, I had because they had cookbooks all over the place. So I learned how to cut a chicken. I think I was maybe eight or ten. And I was so proud of myself, and I showed them how I did this when they were at work. And then, needless to say, thereafter, whenever there was a chicken that needed to be cut, I had to do it. So I wish I hadn't done that.
0: <laughs> now, was this a was this a chicken that was already dead, or did you have to actually chop the head off of a chicken?
1: Oh no, this is San Francisco, and ain't the farm okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a whole chicken that was in the refrigerator, okay. <laughs> well, you mentioned San
0: Francisco. So what, what was it like living in San Francisco back then?
1: It was wonderful. I mean, obviously, San Francisco is an urban sec- se- sector of the United States, but I always we always felt safe there because it was just neighbors everywhere. And uh, we all would hang out together. We'd have little clubs. Um, again, because I was, quote unquote, a latchkey kid. My parents did provide guidance on you know what to do when they weren't around. And so one of the things that my stepmom showed us how to do was how to get to um, the Golden Gate Park, which was probably maybe no more than five miles from our house. So she drove us from the house to Golden Gate Park so we could all figure out how to ride our bikes there. And so we would do that most summers, me and my, at the time it was two siblings, and the neighborhood kids. We would, that's how we spent our summer going to Golden Gate Park and all the museums at the time were free. So we would go to the Academy of Science, we'd go to the Japanese tea garden and we would just spend all day roaming around in the museums and we only had a few dollars. So we would always just chip in and buy some French fries <laughs> and that was enough to feed us you know, for the uh, lunch. And sometimes we would venture out and also go to the beach, which was maybe another mile or two out. Um, So we spent a lot of time in the San Francisco museums. And um, that was one of the things that I felt blessed about because today is so expensive to go to the museums. In fact, I just have such a heartfelt uh, feeling about the museums that I made sure my children, we had met family memberships and it would cost me 65 bucks. 80 bucks is probably more for a family membership but back then we could just go in for free and and, and was no, i know there was all these issues about being a children on a um, parented but no one we never had a bad experience no one ever tried to approach us or come near us because maybe it was always five or six of us but there was never any racial tensions either why are these black kids running around it was never that. And so, um, and I think that's why a lot of us ended up very well in, in our career, because we were exposed to all these museums all throughout, you know, our childhood. But San Francisco was really great for that, just an urban sect setting, but it had a lot and Golden Gate Park was just it was one of the few places that had grass and trees all over the place. And we, we were very attracted to that as well, because where we lived was mostly cement. The most tree we had was a bush somewhere, maybe some lawns, but there was not a lot of lawns in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. and so um, it was just wonderful uh, living in San Francisco and riding our bikes all throughout the city, and you know, in a safe setting because our track was we go. I lived in off of Miramar and Ocean Avenue. We'd go through San Francisco State, and then we'd hit the the park part, and then it was all parkland from there, and then we just it's like a big giant circle. So but, uh,
0: it, it sounds like even though you know you you had the role of, of of watching after your siblings and and obviously that big responsibility it wasn't just something that you know you you had to just stay at home and watch watch your your brothers and sisters it sounds like you made the most
1: of it and really you know you all explored what was around you oh yeah it was great um and it was interesting because back then we could be gone hours at a time and nobody seemed to worry but we always came home and we na- we never gave my parents or the neighbor's parents, a reason to feel alarmed. And back then, obviously there was no cell phones. There was no way for us to be checked on or we could check on others or, or our adults. Um, but we were generally, at least when we would go on our excursions, everybody did adhere to to what I was saying. So I didn't have, no nobody tried to ride off on their own. So there was none of that. But certainly when we were out, we, everybody followed the, the leader, which was me to make sure, and we all got home safely every, every day. And as you
0: began to kind of, you're, you're getting older at this point, you're transitioning you know, into high school, starting to think about college. Uh, you, you know, your workload as a high school student, I'm sure is, is more um, than, than it was. And you're starting to really think about your future. Were, were there challenges? How did you balance you know, education, high school education and looking at college with with what you had to do at home?
1: Um, I think at that point, I was already used to juggling the the responsibilities and and also that my siblings were a little older as well. So that helped that they weren't babies by the time I was in high school. I think the youngest at that time was probably uh, 10. So she wasn't a baby. And so that, that helped. And actually by the time I was in high school, I was working. Um, not every day, obviously, but just a couple of days a week to, to make some extra pocket money f- for school clothes. And I really enjoyed uh, working, and that got me outside of the house. So that was the one thing I didn't get to do extracurricular, but I got to do, I got to work, ex- especially during the summer. My grandmother owned a convalescent hospital, and so I was a nurse's aide for I think one or two summers. And um, the one thing I learned was that I didn't want to wear white and I didn't wanna work in a hospital. And that was a really good experience because my aunts and my grandmother, and even my stepmom, they were all registered nurses. They were all RNs. And so their hope was either I'd be a RN or a doctor, but I said, I ain't doing that. I wanna wear professional clothes like I do today. <laughs> and, so, and so I was, just, and, and so after the by the third summer I got to work at Baskin-Robbins, I was so happy all I had to do was scoop ice cream. And so <laughs> was, believe me, if you've ever worked in a convalescent hospital where you have to take care of older people and you have to help them go to the bathroom, it was awful. I know it's a noble position and I, I thank God for all of our hospital workers, but I wasn't one of them. But to answer your question, um, that did help that I was able to um, do some work um, outside of the house. And that was the time I got to, again, explore the world and explore what I didn't or didn't want to do. Because I probably could have easily, not easily, it would have been hard, but I could have gotten to medical school and probably graduated. Um, but I'm glad I didn't pursue that at all. I'm glad I knew exactly what I wanted to do outside. I mean, I knew I didn't want to do that. And that's half the battle, right? Not knowing, knowing what you don't want to do. And so that was a high point of just exploring life and exploring what I wanted to do. And, and you talk about jobs, making some extra money to, to certainly,
0: you know, help around the house and help buy you things. Did you did you use that? I mean, I assume early on you had to learn financial management. And, 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 and certainly that was seems like that was a, a big part of, 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 you know, as you grew into a young adult. Is that what helped shape what you wanted to do with the rest of your life?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was two things. Um, Of course, me working in the convalescent hospital and having to wear that uniform. And then one of the most striking, and I still remember this today, and I might have been even before I started working in high school, but my dad took me to pay the insurance. See, back then you had to pay everything in person or you had to put it in the mail. And I remember seeing this beautiful black woman who had this beautiful suit on and her hair and her makeup was perfect. And I said, I don't know what she's doing, but that's how I want to look. And that shaped me. And then when I got my job, uh, my first job, my father helped me open up a savings account. And he said, this is what you, you put your money, your paycheck, whatever you don't spend, put it in your savings account. And that helped me as well at a very young age. And the back then, everything was in person. You couldn't, there was no ATM machine. So you physically had to go to the bank and you got to meet the bank teller. They knew who you were. And I would make my deposits every paycheck. So that was a, a, a discipline um, that I learned very early on, which is so interesting that they even have these payday loan things and these places where you deposit your check for, and you got to pay a fee. And I knew, you know, in high school to just open up a bank account and put your money there and it's free. And it sounds like you were, you know,
0: even though your parents, you know, had to work, um, had, you know, had to work a lot to, to make ends meet. It seems like at least the, you know, the advice you got from your dad was really good advice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he was a tough father. I'll say that because I know when I was, trying to figure out what I wanted to do at Berkeley, you know, as a young person, you're a bleeding heart, you want to save the world. And so I said, well, I'm going to get a social work degree. And he said, hell no, you ain't getting a social work degree. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, what should I get? He said, anything but that. And so, (laughs) and that also (laughs) shaped what I was going to, I said, well, I'll do finance then. He said, that sounds good to me. But I'll have to admit, I know where he was coming from. There's this old movie called Claudine, and it's a very famous old black movie. And James Earl Jones was in it and Diane Carroll. So they're very accomplished actor and actresses. But anyway, the movie was about a single mom with 10 kids and she was always trying to make ends meet. And the social worker would come and check in on her, make sure she wasn't getting any extra income from her boyfriend. And um, needless to say, most Black people don't like social workers. And that was his experience. And I saw the movie many times. And I said, "Okay, I don't want to be like her, who was attacking the family and keeping, you know. So it's interesting how different influences factor into your parents' advice. So it's not that he didn't want me to help. He just didn't want me to be. That was his vision of a social worker. And so it was like, I don't you're not doing that. And so I appreciate it. And I didn't I was too young to figure out or argue why. But again, uh, finance uh, was definitely my father's influence. And you talk about um, you talk about Berkeley going to Berkeley.
0: Were you as you prepared to go into college? Obviously, you know, we, we've heard from you. Money is tight. Were you you know, you this Berkeley not a chief school. Um, did you you know, how did you how did you make that happen? How did you make that work?
1: Yeah, it was tough. It was tough because um it was hard going there because my not all my, my stepmother didn't necessarily have an appreciation for me going to Berkeley. My father had mixed feelings because they thought that maybe I would deviate too much from their from, from them being that much more educated. I mean Berkeley is, is one of the top university public universities in the world it just happened to be the school that I could get access to from my house without having to so it just turned out I ended up being at Berkeley and it was definitely mixed feelings and fear that I might change or I might not love them the way that I had so that was a barrier and then the money factor my father couldn't at regardless of the cost there was no way he was going to contribute Um, to my college education. He thought he was, and then when the bills came, he realized he couldn't. And so um, I just started working part-time. And what was amazing at that point in time, that a semester at Cal was $400 a semester. So $800 a year. So if I had a place to live, I could make ends meet by working part-time without any loans and so that's what i was able to do i mean i didn't and, and it turned out eventually i had to move out of my father's house but i was able to find stay with my aunt and then stay with a friend for a while and um all through the while i worked at the at a bookstore i had nighttime phone banking jobs but I, but through the part time work i was able to um to pay my tuition and pay for my books and so that's a totally different story today and it's really unfortunate that even 25 years ago tuition is now 20,000 so you can't work part-time and it doesn't make sense over 20 years that tuition has gone from 800 a year to 20,000 it makes no sense
0: you talk about having to, you know, you were you were staying at home some while you were, were in college, but eventually leaving leaving home and and that first big transition. It sounds like maybe you hand, did you handled that well. How 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 did it how was it leaving leaving dad and, and the others behind?
1: Well, I didn't leave, but I got forced to leave.
0: <laughs> oh, well, <there's laughs> <that
1: too>. Okay. <laughs> yeah, my father. You know, him and his him and my stepmother would come and go with their relationship, and the last time. They broke up and when they got back together, she was like, I don't want Lisa Marie in the house. I don't want my other sister. So we had to find somewhere else to live. And um, we moved, my aunt allowed us to live there for a while and just didn't work out. And so I had to find somewhere else. And so I ended up moving in with my boyfriend's grandmother. So I was just so thankful that um, they let me live there and I only had to pay you know, a nominal amount because they knew I was trying to get through college. And of course, I ended up marrying this man, so um, it all that worked out well too. But it it was a challenge. I mean, I felt like I was homeless for a moment in time, but um, under no circumstances was I going to quit Berkeley. And I guess that brings me to another uh, influential factor. When I was, I think, I, I I read books. I read all the time, and that was one of the things I, I think that gave me comfort and peace through all the chaos of my early childhood, but one book that had an impression on me the most was a book called I think A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and uh, it turned out during all this moment in time, we lived on Brooklyn Avenue, (laughs) and um, in the story, the mom was battling with the daughter because she really wanted to go to college, and she couldn't afford it, and for whatever reason, the mom won out, and the girl didn't go to college. And I vowed to myself, that is never going to happen to me. And so for whatever reason, I had this compelling just belief in my in my system that I was going, once I got into Berkeley, I was going to graduate. And it didn't matter the challenges that I was going to see, I was going to get through it. And in spite of, because when I first got in, for the first semester, I had to, that I moved twice. I didn't have my tuition paid for because I didn't know I had to pay for it. And I was on probation because I didn't have books that I needed to to pass classes. Um, But um, I got I got, got to live with my boyfriend's grandmother and then everything just started settling down. And then I knew what I had to develop a plan and a strategy, and I knew I had to pay for things. And um, so then I started paying all my bills. And um, by the third year, I applied for um, independence. And it's really hard to to claim, to, to justify that you're independent from your parents, right? Cause most parents, especially if you've gotten in a university are there to support you. And so if you're independent, it's usually a fraud. And so that's what they thought. And I had, I think I appealed over a period of a year and I kept appealing and showing that I really was not living at home that I wasn't getting any financial support from home. And I had letters on my behalf, because I was attending church at my, hus- at my husband's church, and so the pastor wrote a letter, and there was always long lines at Berkeley, whatever you had to do, because nothing was automated, and that's another thing, I will never, I don't stand in lines, if there's a line, I will find another way, because I don't, I don't stand in lines, anyway, so I finally stood in line, again, appealing, trying to get independence, because once you get independence, then you can get some state grants, some Pell grants, and you can do work studies, so that I didn't have to find my own job, and I finally got to meet a person to review my application and she reviewed it in front of me. And I knew that she had, nobody had ever seen it. Nobody read it. Cause as soon as she finished reading, she was in tears and she approved my independence. And then I got to have grant money. And then my life at Berkeley was much more stable and secure. And so you just have to persevere. But um, it was definitely challenging and it was highs and lows, even when you, when, you're, when you have everything, like my child, she went to Berkeley and she still had highs and lows, but at least she never had to worry about money. Um, but it's And there's always some, something in your way to keep you from graduating from Berkeley or any institution, because four years is a lot to occur in anybody's life. Um, but um, I'm just thankful that I persevered. And uh, I don't even know if that book is still in print. I haven't read it since, but uh, it's a great book. <laughs> well, you know, it's, It seems like
0: from, from listening to you that, you know, you had so much going on. So it sounds like a lot of stress and and a lot of different hoops to jump through and, and, and things to juggle. But I mean, would it be fair to say that you looked at this as, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna have a better life for yourself and for your future family than you grew up in, and, and that was the motivating
1: factor and all this? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I knew. Well, I knew once I, I couldn't live at home anymore, I knew that I had the only fallback was me, and that's a lot to motivate anybody. <laughs> you're gonna focus on having to achieve something like graduating and getting a job so that you can take care of yourself. And I, I think too often, when you grow up in a, a poor community, that there's a tendency to just let your parents, you uh, let your kids go at 18. And, and that is a legacy that needs to stop from any culture. And I know in African American culture it does persist, and I'm sure for others as well. But no one should be put out at 18 and expect to, to think that you're gonna su- succeed. I just had a very maybe like because of my growing up and me being the oldest and me being accountable, it was just another thing that I was used to. Um, but um, I knew that and even still today that i'm I can't rely on my parents or anybody to 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 succeed. and so that that was definitely. so I'm obviously a very ambitious, very high achiever individual. i I know I've achieved, more than, 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 than some. Um, and that's what keeps me going. And we'll be back with more of our conversation
0: with Lisa Marie in just a moment. back with Lisa Marie. So life in college, we've, we've heard some of the stories and some of the struggles of having to pay for things. And as that, as that starts to wind down and you start to actually see the, kind of see the, the horizon of it coming to an end or, and, and, and you're moving on and you're starting to think about what's with your life because, you know, college is over. You've had these part-time jobs to make, make, make ends meet, pay the tuition, and all of those things. Uh, it's time to start, I guess, focusing on, you know, what do I want to do? Or had you already, had you already decided that in your
1: mind? No, I mean, that was the great thing about working. Um, Not only my my childhood experience of being a nurse's aide and not knowing what I wanted to do, by continuing to do various summer jobs or working part-time, it explored, I explored the kind of talent that I had um, and the kind of skills that I had. And one of the, the best jobs I had at Cal, I worked in what's what the time was called student advising. And so it was a, um, a, 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 pro, a program at the university that number number one they did was they kept letters of recommendation from professors, and mostly medical students and law school students used that service because they needed those letters as a part of their application package. So we would manage all of the letters of recommendation that we would also offer counseling services for all the students who are trying to figure out their graduate school or their work life after so i was exposed to this on a regular basis because that's where i worked and also at student advising all the different programs for graduate school funding graduate school all came through there as advertisements so i got to see them all that i was flushed with just having to manage it, file it, and of course we would read it too and we would all talk about it. And uh, I know there was the Consortium for Business School which helped minorities get paid for business school, but business school you needed at least two years of experience and and I needed to do something as soon as I finished Berkeley. And so one of the programs that came through was the uh, Sloan P, uh, the Sloan Fellowship for Public Policy and essentially it, is a ten, it was a ten-year program. The program—I was the last cohort of the ten-year program. And essentially, you apply to the program. If you get in, you go to summer. You go to a summer program, and there was like ten schools that allowed. Once you got in, you had to spend a summer there. So I—I I chose Berkeley. I got into the Berkeley summer program, and they paid for housing and the program. And upon successful completion of the program you still had to apply and you only had 10 schools and you had to apply on your own right. All they knew was that you had a year of funding if you got in. And so I applied to the, I think not all 10, but five or six of them. And, and oh, by the way, the goal of the program was to encourage minorities to consider government service. Because there weren't enough minorities in leadership in government, according to the Sloan Foundation. And all I will say is that I probably went, would have went to business school, but because I got the public policy Sloan Fellowship and I, I knew I wouldn't have to pay for a graduate for public policy, then that, I could, it, it would afford me a choice of considering government service. And so I got into Michigan and Michigan was one of the two schools that um, the Sloan Foundation only paid for one year, but Michigan matched it. I think there was only one other school at the time that matched the, the second year, so once I got into Michigan with the foundation money and and um, Michigan matching it, and I got I think four five hundred a month or something like that. Anyway, so I was set. I didn't have to work anymore. I could just focus on my graduate degree and get a degree in in public policy. and um, And then that that's all she wrote. And I've been in the public sector my whole career, except for two years when I tried to be an investment banker. But, um, but it was, it was a good, uh, the, the Slum Foundation, I think it served its purpose, at least for me, because I've been one of the only uh, African-American females in leadership in wherever I've been. And in between
0: um, undergraduate and graduate school, you, you were had an internship in a city manager's office in Richmond, California. And then after you finished, after you finished your graduate degree, you went, I guess, for your first real, real professional job at at the EPA, right?
1: Yeah, yep, I ended up at the EPA, and what's interesting, I had a roommate, we both went through the Sloan program together, we both went to Michigan together, and then we both went to EPA together, and what was most odd is that we had a professor at Michigan who required I think it was some kind of policy class, and he made us all do an environmental research. And we told him we didn't wanna do environmental research. We wanted to research the the poor income communities of the country. And he he allowed us to deviate, but but lo and behold, where did we end up? At EPA, of all places. (laughs) So we ended up doing environmental research anyway, and of course, he just laughed us laughed at us all the way to EPA. And what was
0: that like? What were some of the things you got to dive into with that that position?
1: EPA w- was a great organization because everybody there is educated. They all have masters, PhDs, bachelor's degrees. So I felt like it was an extension of undergrad because it was. I felt like I was still in a college setting. So the transition from being at a university to EPA was very minimal. And the, EP, the people of EPA, they're so dedicated and they care so much about the environment. I've never seen folks care so much about just very minutiae from my perspective at the time about uh, environmental issues. And so I started out in the toxics department. And the goal of the toxics department, you have to um, all regulations have to meet a cost benefit test it just has to be done benefits don't have to exceed costs but uh, there was a regulation as a part of the toxic spreads that said benefits had to exceed costs which meant almost no regulation through the toxic department went through because it was so such a burden but essentially there's a team of economists that do that work and so that was the task that I had to perform was to do benefit cost analysis to support our regulations. And at the time I was there, there was a lot of frustration that we couldn't get any um, um, regs passed. So then they started this process of negotiating with companies instead of having to actually regulate them, but have them sit at the table and negotiate with you. And they found that the staff that did the economic work was more so, more socially and professionally balanced. Because a lot of the engineers and the PhDs, they were so focused on their research that they couldn't, they didn't have really the, the skill set, for example, to negotiate with the CEO of a company. And I remember one of the first negotiations I had, I was we were negotiating to get rid of chlorethane, which is a chemical that was used to uh, blow um, air into foam and it was causing cancer. And I remember I had to negotiate with the CEO of the company to st- to figure out a, a different way of building this phone without this chemical. And um, EPA was so, I don't know that maybe we didn't have enough staff, but I was put in a room by myself. And I think I was 25 and it was these two old white people. <laughs> And they looked at me like, do you belong here? And I didn't say nothing, but I said, I wonder if I belong here too. But you know, I, I, quit, I, I negotiated. And then after the first meeting, they knew I was gonna be the only one. And we ended up um, with a, a, a resolution and they changed the chemical and we, the EPA won. We didn't have to regulate them because we weren't probably going to be successful at it. But at the end of the day, the company changed the the, the chemical on a voluntary basis. And so that was just an amazing experience to as a young person to to be given so much responsibility. But at the same time I, I came through and, and I was successful. And yeah. I and I and I won an award for it too. <laughs>
0: Congratulations on that. Yeah, you, sure. you 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 just um you just joked a little bit about do I belong here and you know 25 years old at the time of doing this. And I mean, did, did at any point you take, you step back at, you know, at the EPA and you're, you're 25, you got a graduate degree, not that long ago, you were living with all your siblings, taking care of everybody. And, and I mean, did did you say to yourself, realistically, absolutely, I belong here?
1: Oh yeah, I was just joking. I, I absolutely, absolutely. And I've been able, and that's one of the joys I take throughout my career, just proving people wrong, because as soon as I open my mouth, they realize, okay, she knows what she's doing, but there's always doubts. <laughs> and did your did your dad see that, you know, after
0: these accomplishments of, of graduate school and, and and your first big job at the EPA that, you know, she did it? My daughter oh, did it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's very proud of me. Mm-hmm. Very good. And so, your time at the EPA winds down and then you, you make another move, right? To to the airport.
1: Yeah. So essentially I was there for five years and I, I did work in toxics for a couple of years and I also worked in solid waste, which was a nice transition. It was more um, of an organization that, that was more broader to the environment because toxics was so unique to chemicals, but solid waste I got to learn about um, cement kilns that produce power that also create a waste and trying to work with cement kilns and, and incinerators. And I got to travel all over the country looking at cement kilns and incinerators and how to change how they pr- pr- produce work. And um, and it was great. I probably would have stayed there as for my whole career. And I was able to uh, achieve a gold medal where most um, analysts don't get to even have one. And I did it in the first five years. My name was really big and people were trying to pursue me within the agency. But my husband was uh, finishing up law school and we were from the Bay Area. And we just felt that if we were gonna have children, it would have been too challenging to do so by ourselves without any extended family. And so we moved back to the Bay Area and I had to start all over trying to figure out, well, what am I gonna do next? Because the EPA, all the economic work is only done at headquarters in DC they have regional offices and they have one in San Francisco. And I did get, get to meet the regional director, but my line of work just wasn't available. And so I really just had to start all over. And one of the, um, I, I read the, the parachute book, I forgot the name of it, but it's a really good book when you're in transition it makes you go through all these surveys and evaluating your skills and what you can and can't do. It helps you just start all over. Anyway. So I was encouraged to, to utilize my network. So I, had Michigan and Berkeley pull, me, pull up all the top people that graduated from the university that lived in the Bay Area. And then I asked for informational interviews. So I must have I met with top people like from McKinsey, different top people at the city of San Francisco. They were just so happy to meet with me, but none of them could promise me anything. But they all, one thing always led to me meeting with somebody else who gave me more advice, and more advice. And then I ended up talking to a a supervisor in some department in San Francisco. And he said, why don't you apply for this job and see what happens? And that's how I landed my job in San Francisco as an analyst, actually first in the 911 department. And after doing a year or two there, that transitioned to me being a finance director for the newly created 911 department, which we had sold a couple of bonds there. And then the uh, assistant deputy airport director position at the airport opened up, and I had much m- enough um, experience to get the the interview. And so I was uh, selected to, to interview, and the only uh, inconvenient part of it that I was pregnant with my son, and I was like, Well, I don't want to tell anybody. So I didn't. and. Um, By the time the process took so long that by the time I finally got the offer, my son was born. And so I was literally maybe five days just giving birth. And they said, well, you got you got two weeks. You got to make a decision. (laughs) And uh, so I started after two weeks after my son was born and I got the job at San Francisco Airport. So it was and it was a it was a big job because we were building. The the, we called it back then, the new international terminals, 2 million square feet, $2 billion facility. And my biggest task was to um, issue bonds to pay for that facility. And at the time I had just inherited what the plan was. And instead of issuing 2 billion in one big swoop like Atlanta, because I know they did, a, I think a billion dollar deal, they were the first ones to issue that much in one um, issuance. We issued five hundred thousand every uh, two times a year. So I don't. Looking back, I don't know if that was the best use of time. But it, needless to say, we I sold four debt issuances, two billion dollars over two years. So it was a lot. I mean, we we're always planning. Once we closed the deal, then we were working to to plan for the new deal. Um, but but it, but it was great experience. I mean, I I had like. 20 financial professionals working with me to get this done the, the bond council the FAs the underwriters dealing with the rating agencies and, and I was 30 something at the time 31 so I was still really relatively young and I know even some of the bond team members they knew I had just had a baby so they had doubts but when I came into my first meeting I commanded them and we got it done. And I didn't, I, when I start work, I don't care what you think you've heard until you sit with me, you'll know I'm no joke. And that's the way I run the bond teams. And we were able to, to sell those bonds in two years. And um, we were the largest, we were one of the largest issuers in the state of California at the time since we were issuing so much. And um, that's what really got the attention of the state treasurer, Phil Angelides, because whenever these, high level people, when they vet people, they just ask around first. And um, my name always came to the top of the list. And so that's how I got to interview with state treasure Angelides.
0: And you mentioned having having your son and 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 not wanting to tell tell some that, that you were pregnant at the time and, and some being worried about knowing you just had a bit was that a real concern for for, for, for people then? Um, you know And obviously times have changed since then that, that that's not acceptable now, but it seems like it was, it was a concern and on the minds of many women back then.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. When I interviewed for the airport, I was showing, but not that much, but I made sure I wore a dress they couldn't tell. So I don't know if it was maybe something that they really could do to not give me the job, but I certainly didn't want to take that chance. It just... I don't know what the rules were back then, but it was certainly something that I was very, very concerned about that I couldn't uh, uh, offer that information. And it was really interesting too, when I, for the interview, um, since my son was just born, um, I needed to have him go to the interview with us. And so me and my husband, and he brought my daughter too. So we did, was a family affair. And I told him, Stay in the car. Don't get, it's only should only take 20, 30 minutes. Let me get this done. Stay in the car. And I even I said this part too, a, a women's bonfire or women's form. And they just love the story. But anyway, news short story. Um, when I got out of the interview, he was in the lobby with the baby. And then when I looked through the window, my daughter was running around talking to everybody. And I'm like, oh shit, we got to get the
0: hell out of here. <laughs> uh, you know, I think we, we talked earlier about the I did it moment, and and yeah. I also have to, you know, have to think. Hearing this now, and and you know, you know, you, you had that you had that job at the EPA, and everything was you know great. And then then the transition comes, and based on you know the childhood, of, it seems like you also had to be thinking at, at times. Nothing is nothing comes easy to me.
1: Oh, no, not at all. And I didn't think I was really going to get that job because my daughter, she literally was going around playing with people. And then my husband's walked with this baby crying all over the place. I'm like, oh, Jesus. But uh, I got the job. So I was very happy. And it, that was really, to me, a job that I broke the glass ceiling, where that was the first job I made over $100,000. And I really felt like, wow, I got it. I got it done. It was, it, and and then even though once I got it, it was so much work um, to, to not only prove everybody, but just to get the job done. At the time, the mayor was Willie Brown, John Martin was the airport director. They were very important people trying to get this incredible facility um, completed on time and on budget, and I was at the helm of that. Um, but um, I was very well educated, I had a good experience, and not to, um, to belittle public finance, but I will tell you that the economic and the complex analytical work I had to do at the EPA was much more harder, and that made the, the analytical work for being a finance director was a, was much easier, so at least the analytical part. What was easier, and that made my job that much more easier in spite of the complexity.
0: And so from there, you work uh, the State of California Treasurer, it was like uh, I believe from 01 to 05. Then you went to the County of, of San Diego for, for quite a bit. Talk about that and, and where, or, or maybe it had already happened. Where, when did GFOA kind of get on your radar? It
1: It got. On my radar when I worked for the state treasurer's office, because at the time I was the executive director for the California debt investment advisory commission. And it's a great Commission for state of California and we and it's funded by the the bond issuances, so I think because of the way it's funded it should always be an infrastructure of California. But it's an organization that provides training in public finance, and it also has many forums. Um, as well as conferences and it and it also does research on public and investments again I got much more exposure to debt and investments because we also serve as the clearinghouse all debt issued has to go through uh, the CDAC as well as all investment policies have to go to CDAC and from that information we're able to do research that might be really important for the day. And also at the time the state treasurer Phil Angelides was running for governor in the last two years of my um, time there. So it it made the job that much more high profile. And he asked me to develop a strategy to to just give more exposure to CDAC. And so one of the strategies I developed was to partner with all the various organizations. So like the the California Treasurer's Association, the California Finance, Association, I negotiated with the CEO and asked if we could have a a time slot in your conference. And that really helped catapult um, Cediac. And in fact, one of the things that I'm most proud of, I negotiated a pre-conference with the bond buyer of California. So every year, Cediac has a pre-conference only where issuers and the speakers can go to it. And I think that, and that has occurred every year there since I've left. And that's really also what raised the profile of CEDAC, but also helped r- raise the profile of the treasurer. So he, he was very happy about that. And, and I'm I'm very happy about the legacy that I left with CEDAC. But um, needless to say, from that experience, I also was, I, I started attending all the GFOA debt committees and then I tried to negotiate, well, I applied for the debt, um, the, the debt committee. And um, it was interesting at the time, I still was learning about GFOA and how influential it was or wasn't. And I remember by being on the debt committee, you all these important um, high profile folks that are in that industry from the bond lawyers to the, the regulators. And I remember having breakfast with the SEC regulator that would come. They, every year there's a new, or not every year, but every so often there's a new one. And I remember one of the things she told, because I said, "Well, was GFOA really influential in this industry? And she said, absolutely. That's one organization you need to be a part of. And coming from her, I really heard it. And then from then on, I shortly thereafter, I was on the debt committee. And when I rolled off, I was on the investment committee. I was the chair of the black caucus. I mean, once I'm in, I'm all in. And then I ended up being the executive uh, on the board and now I'm a past executive board member. I encourage all my staff, if not um, at a minimum be a member, but I encourage them to also not seek membership but to seek leadership so that they can influence the organization that they're in. And so I've been, uh, and GFOA has been there Every long, every way along the way, and it's not—it's been a great organization to leverage um, talent that I can't u- utilize at work, like managing, you know, helping with conferences. And I remember some of the funnest times I had was um, sponsor helping sponsor the Black Caucus Party, and everybody loves going to the Black Caucus Party, but it's a lot of work. Um, but that was fun; it was a fun thing to do. Um, And so GFOA has really been there. And so since then, I I really was just leveraging the strategy that I was asked to was to to heighten CDF, but um, a fallout of that was also leveraging my experience. And I think that's one of the, the strengths that I have still as a finance director now in the water industry, just years and years of ongoing education and just being very well attuned to the trends are in the finance world from debt investments from pensions and I can take my own um, thought process on if I agree or disagree and I think um, it's critical as finance directors and government we're we're just bombarded with all these advisors right that help us with the law and the FAs but I'll tell you after being continually educated I am definitely a lifelong learner and GFOA has allowed me to do that, that sometimes I tell my financial advisors what, I, what, what should happen, and then they process it and think about it, and, and then they agree with me. It's, there's no reason that you should be relying solely on any professional or consultant. You should also have your own thoughts and beliefs about a particular issue, and GFOA equips, I believe, finance directors to have those uh, beliefs and, and experience and knowledge. Because I think some of the, the, the trouble that some finance, finance directors get into is because they rely on on a lawyer or a financial advisor. But at the end of the day, when things fall apart, it's the financial advisor that, I mean, it's the staff person that loses their job. You still have, you're still gonna be held accountable even if uh, a financial advisor or a lawyer told you to do something. And
0: it seems like from from an engaged member standpoint at GFOA, you've certainly, certainly set the bar very high in terms of, of all that, that you've decided to take part in with the organization, which is, which is great to see. As we wrap up the interview, obviously, um, let's kind of fast forward to, to present time, 2014 to now. You you, you briefly mentioned it, uh, the San Diego County Water Authority. That's where you're at. You've been there for quite a while. What's that experience been like, and, and what's the future hold
1: to you? Sure. So I've been at the San, San Diego County Water Authority for seven years, and it's a it's an amazing, very challenging experience. Um, the water industry a, is a utility similar to like an airport that we, we don't rely on taxes. We, we rely on the revenue that we generate similar to like an airport. And so that that's another reason why I think the airport experience was really helpful um, to me being at the water industry, because we are are we sustained by our rates and charges from our water sales, just like an airport is based on landing and um, terminal fees and rental fees. And so as a finance director, it makes your job that much more complex because you're not just dependent on some tax revenue. No, you actually have to generate the revenue for your organization. And so that, that's been fascinating and, and water is so complex. I, I mean, the airports are complex too, but water, especially in San Diego, where basically without the San Diego Water Authority, there would not be any water here. I mean, we are essentially a desert. We import 90% of our water through the infrastructure built by the Water Authority. And we built uh, $3 billion worth of in- infrastructure. We've raised dams. We built the desalinization plant, one of the largest on the Western Hemisphere. We built 300 miles of pipe to get water to this region. And oddly enough, we only have 255 employees. So we're not a very personnel intensive organization, but we are very infrastructure intensive. So we have a very few number of staff, but we're highly professional engineers, largely finance staff. Operation staff, um, et cetera, um, to, to maintain this system so that we can get water to the region. And we only deal with the wholesale part of the water. We deliver it to like a city or a smaller district and then they sell it to a commercial and residents. Um, but it, I think it's, it's such a noble um, position to be in, to be a part of a system that delivers water to this region. Um, So I, I definitely take pride in the work that I do and these last two years with the pandemic has just been such tremendous pressure because, of course, it's already people don't want to pay that much for water anyway, but that additional pressure when so many people were out of work and people were trying to make their ends meet and then we were placed on a moratorium or at least our member agencies on not being able to shut water off. And so we still had the responsibility of delivering water, not me as a wholesale, but my, my member agencies. But that put pressure on the wholesale agency to try to have the least amount of increases so that to give relief to our member agencies. And, and anyway, long story short, I, I had to develop a, a strategic plan on how to make all that happen to have the least amount of rates possible increase but at the same time keep the water authority whole and we certainly we have very high ratings which we want to maintain because we have two billion dollars of outstanding debt so when you have that kind of debt outstanding there there's a lot um, to lose if your finances are not in order and so i was able to restructure some debt um, cause some allowed for some rate relief at least last year and this year, um, as well as maintain our ratings. We were put on a negative outlook, however, and I'm working hard to um to make that go away. We'll see what happens, but it's been um a, a challenge, and I'm just so great that um I was able to develop that plan, execute it, get the board. To understand i have 36 board members from very diverse communities from very diverse financial backgrounds Um, so that was a challenge but um, the good news is that we were able to have minimal rate increases last year and this year and i've been able to maintain the ratings at the same time so it's definitely been a challenge but i think all the experience that i've had thus far helped me to develop and execute that strategy and I, i i really applaud GFOA for always giving, keeping me up to par with, uh, with, with the issues that are at hand. I mean, in fact, I had a board member that came in and said, oh, we need to do pension bonds. I said, no, I don't do pension bonds and I'll send you the advisory from GFOA why I don't. And then that was the end of that. It was just so nice. I didn't have to have a debate about it. I actually had something in writing that I could give to him to, to, to support my position. I wasn't just you know, support, saying that because I wanted to. But it, it just gave me that much more um, clout, if you will, so that he understood where my, because he just heard it from somewhere, somebody was doing something. But, but that's the kind of support that GFOA offers. And
0: it also sounds like uh, you talked about the challenge. Yeah. From talking with you the last hour, it seems like you're up for any challenge. So
1: uh, (laughs) I appreciate
0: that. Absolutely. As we wrap up uh, Finance Friday, we would like to ask our guests some some a few fun questions uh, just to get some insight. Are you ready for that? Sure. All right. So, Lisa Marie, what's your favorite vacation spot?
1: Um, Well, I haven't been on a vacation in a long time because I've been raising my two college graduated uh, (laughs) kids, but I am very thankful I have two college educated kids. Um, But one of the most fond memories I had was when me and my husband went to Jamaica for our anniversary and I would, I mean, for our wedding. And so I was telling him, I think I'd like to go back to Jamaica. So that's one of the things I would like to do. What is your biggest pet peeve? biggest pet peeve? That's a good question. You got to give me an example. Sorry, because I have been talking too long.
0: Well, you know, somebody, uh, you know, tapping their fingers. Here's an example. Phone ringing in the background when you're trying to do an interview.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. I guess a pet peeve of mine is when somebody asks me to ask me a question and they know the answer if they just spend five minutes to look for it themselves.
0: I'll be interested to hear this one. What's the first car you owned?
1: Oh, that's a good question. My first car was a red Beretta. It was a really nice car. And I got and I saved for it when I was. Just about to go to Michigan. In fact, I didn't get my, my license until I was 25 because I was in a car accident when I was trying to do uh, car education. You know, we made all the 16-year-olds do that. And I'm like, I ain't driving in a while, which I didn't. But after I finally got my driver's license and I saved for it, I wanted a shiny red car. And that's what it was. There you go. And final question. What's a bucket list item that you'd like to accomplish? Bucket list. Well... My goal is to sit on a corporate board. That's my goal. Especially now with um, these initiatives in California, just adopted a a 50-50 women on boards initiative. And I'm well on my way to achieving that goal. I tried to, I I was just learning how to figure out how to navigate this board thing. And uh, I was approached to consider a port commission for San Diego, and it turned into a whole campaign, which I know I was getting myself into. And I was running against people that I shouldn't even been thinking about, but I was already in it. Needless to say, I didn't get it. However, it raised my profile exponentially. And shortly thereafter, the mayor of San Diego appointed me to the city's retirement system. So that was that's actually even better Because I know all about, I don't know, I know a lot about pensions because I was sat as an alternate for seven years when I worked for the county treasurer's office. So this is definitely a win-win. So now I'm serving on the board for the retirement system for four years, and it's a very prestigious opportunity. And I'm looking forward to uh, completing my term. And through that, through this achievement, I'm hoping I can leverage that to actually sit on a corporate board. And that's my retirement plan because I know I'm still going to have to work because I took out loans for my children's college education. And so I, I need to retire, but I need to still make money. And so that's my goal. <laughs> All
0: right, very good. Well, Lisa Marie, thank you for talking with us and, and, and giving us so much insight into your life. Uh, fascinating story. We really appreciate it. And, and thank you for listening. We'll talk again on the next Finance Friday. You have been listening to Finance Fridays, a GFOA production. This podcast was produced by Dan Zielinski. Our conversation was hosted by Timothy Martin. The original theme music for Finance Fridays was composed by David Cronister. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review your experience. New episodes will release on Fridays. I'm Chris Morrill, the Executive Director of GFOA. We appreciate you joining us.